So t today, Raquel had to go out and uh, she went to some baby shower. So it was Evan and Daddy time today. And uh, we were just uh, having lunch in the kitchen. And uh, we have some Ale Alexa dots throughout our, our house. And uh, Evan decided, hey, Alexa, let's play a memory game. And so if you haven't got an Alexa, then she can play different games with you and stuff like that. And then, so we were playing it. And then, uh, and then he said, hey, Alexa, do you love Jesus? And Alexa says, I have no opinion on that. <laughs> and he asks her again, Alexa, do you love Jesus? And Alexa again says, I have no opinion on that. And so Evan's like, well, what's an opinion? So, you know, trying to explain what an opinion is. And like, son, you've got lots of opinions. So. <laughs> and then he said, Alexa, Jesus loves you. Right? That's what he said. Yeah. And uh, Alexa says, thank you. I appreciate that. So then he asks again, Alexa, do you love Jesus? And Alexa says, I have no opinion on that. And Evan looked at me with this stunned look. And he says, does Alexa not love Jesus? And it kind of just melted my heart thinking, you know, this kid has grown up in his life immersed in, in a culture where Jesus is front and center. And for him, the thought of somebody not being madly in love with Jesus is just, what, what, what's wrong with Alexa? What's going on with Alexa? And I just thought that was just amazing. That there is such a young little heart there, a little four-year-old who thinks he's 18 years old, who has got the grasp, Jesus loves you. And because Jesus loves us, we love him too. So I just wanted to share that with you. I thought that was pretty neat. But I want to ask you another question today. I want to ask you a question. We're continuing in our Through Him. Actually, we're finishing up our Through Him, For Him series that we've started since the, the beginning of the year. And the question I'm going to ask you today is this. Who are you? Who are you? Now, don't all shout at once, but this is what many people will answer if I ask them the question, who are you? Some people will reply with their occupation. I am a doctor. I am a nurse. I am an administrative assistant. I am a teacher. I am a salesperson. Uh, I have a deadbeat job that I hate. You know, I mean, some people might reply to that. Other people, they may reply to that question, who are you, by saying, I am a man. I am a woman. And in the 21st century, I have no idea what I am. Some people to that question, who are you, will say, I am a Republican. Some will say, I am a Democrat. And the Bernie Sanders supporters will say, I'm a Democratic Socialist, right? That's what they will say. But some people will say, that's who they are. There are other people who will reply to that question, who are you, by describing their sexual orientation, because that becomes their identity. There are others who will say, I am an African-American. I am Hispanic. I am Asian. I'm British. Others to that question, who are you, will say, I'm a singer. I'm a musician. I am a sports person. I am a gamer. 
I am whatever your giftedness is. Then there are others who will reply to that question, who are you? And they will say, I am a Christian. And then others will say, I am a Muslim. And others will say, I'm a Buddhist. And some will say, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. Some will say, I'm a Hindu or I'm a Sikh. Then there are the Christians who often will answer the question, who are you, by saying, I'm a Baptist. I am, we're in an Episcopal church, I'm an Anglican. Some will say, I'm a Catholic. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm charismatic. Then there are others who will say, who are you? And you will say, I am American. I am Mexican. I am English, I am French, I am German, I am a mix of about everything. Then there are some who will say to that question, who are you? I am working class. Others will say, I am middle class. Some will say, I am aristocratic. Our identity is made up often by what we feel or what our culture dictates that we are. We take on the identity of our surroundings. So talking about my son, I've been having this battle with him for about two weeks and I am losing the war. Because I keep telling him that he is British. He has British blood in him. And he keeps saying, no dad, I'm not British, I'm American. So the other day I was trying to describe Evan, you've got British blood in you. And he's like, dad, when will it run out? Right? I'm American. I'm American. I'm like, no, son. You were born in America, but you got British blood and you got Nicaraguan blood. And even the ultimate the other day goes, Dad, I want to be American in Nicaragua and I don't want to be British. And then, then he says this British people just talk funny. That's what he said. <laughs> that was my son. But he's taking on the identity of his surroundings. Maybe I need to move him to Britain. A couple of months ago, I had some family in town, about a month and a half ago, some family in town, and they have allergies beyond allergies. They are allergic to everything, and he's got some friends who have allergies beyond allergies, and Evan doesn't have any allergies, and Evan kept saying, what are my allergies? Dad, what are my allergies? What am I allergic to? And I was like, Evan, you don't have any allergies. You're so fortunate you don't have any allergies. No, I want allergies. Everyone else has got allergies. She's thinking that I'm different. I'm different to other people. We take our identity takes on our surroundings. Who are you? Our worth is in how we view ourselves, and how we view others is tied up in the identity we give them. We view the world through the eyes of our identity. I, I heard this amazing story just a couple of weeks ago of a man called Darrell Davis, who was an African-American who could not understand why the KKK existed. And so he decided to become friends with KKK members. I mean, like, what is the guy thinking? 
And it's amazing, he started becoming friends with this one man who was a leader in the KKK. And they had secret meetings because this man did not want to to let the KKK know he was meeting with an African-American man. And suddenly over a few months they became friends, so much so that this man started introducing other KKK members to this African-American man. And they became friends. How about that? This true story. And this story went on, I was reading this article, and this man now has converted hundreds of KKK members from their racist views to leaving the KKK and embracing friends who are of different ethnic backgrounds. It's an amazing story of transformation. I mean, that man couldn't believe that he did it. But the reason those people viewed him in a different way is because their, whatever their surroundings, the people they surrounded themselves with, had this identity of African-American people. And he wanted to change the narrative in their minds. Last week, Chris gave a quote from a, a pastor in Minnesota, Minneapolis, and uh, he, his name is Greg Boyd. And this was the quote he gave. He says, God does not love because of the worth that he finds in another, as is typical of most expressions of love. Rather, God loves in order to ascribe worth to another. And when I read that quote last, last week as Chris was, was giving the talk, suddenly that quote hit me. And I was like, that is amazing. God is the one who ascribes the worth. It's not what our culture ascribes to us. It's not what we think of ourselves. It's not what, whether our nationality or our job or, 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 or the way that we think of our, our body. That's not the way that we should be ascribed worth. It's how God ascribes worth to us. And it is very hard to give worth to someone when you do not see who they really are. So these KKK members... They would have seen Daryl Davis and they would have just, uh, uh, just, just put a label on him. They did not see the worth within him until he became their friends. We live in a culture that passes judgment on people depending on, our, our, on how our, our culture identifies them. However, I think it's very hard to give people worth the worth that they are due until we understand our own identity. Who are we? I think if we could see us as God sees us, our world will totally change. So I ask you today, are you of any worth? Are you of any worth? There's lots of people in this world who do not think they are, any, are, are of any worth. There's people who, who take their own life every single day because they do not think that they are, are of any worth in this world. But if you could see yourselves as God sees you, suddenly you would just have this smile on your face. So I want to share with you exactly today what God sees in you. It's found in the first book of Peter, chapter 2. The first book of Peter, chapter 
2. I always say, turn your Bibles if you have your Bibles, but we understand we live in a culture where our Bible is our phone. And so, turning your phones to 1 Peter chapter 2. It will be on the screen if you don't have your phone with you today. Who doesn't have their phone? And this is what it says. Peter is talking to Jewish people who are spread out all over the Roman Empire. Not talking to one particular church like Paul often talks to like Ephesus and Galatians and Corinthians. That, that is one particular church. But Peter is talking to Jewish people who are scattered out, who have come to faith in Jesus, who are scattered all over the Roman Empire. And this is what he says. You are coming to Christ. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was replaced by, sorry, he was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scripture says, I am placing a cornerstone in in Jerusalem chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in me will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him, the honor God has given him. So you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you, talking to believers of Jesus, you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. When he judges the world. I think the life of Jesus is so interesting. If Jesus had let the culture pick his identity and defined him, Jesus would have gone off course pretty quick. Think how His culture identified him. The first thing that happened when he came into the world, his identity was illegitimate child. People thought he was a very intelligent man. Some people thought he was a revolutionary leader. 
Many pinned their hopes that Jesus was the restorer of Israel. But then some people identified him as a false teacher. Many people marked him as a troublemaker. Some saw him as just this powerful man. In the 21st century, we would have seen he was a marketing machine. He was a crowd gatherer. But people also probably would have identified him as a failure. The Bible says that at many, one time many no longer followed Jesus for the harsh words he said. His identity also probably would have been wrapped up in being humiliated. A man who was hung naked on a cross to die. People rejected Jesus. There were many who followed Jesus, but even more who rejected Jesus. But his identity was not tied up in people's opinions, but instead his identity came from God. How God looked upon him and how God looked upon Jesus was this. He was the chosen one. He was the son of God, the king of heaven. And as followers of Jesus, then it is imperative That we see ourselves and our identity in how God sees us. Otherwise, the influences of this life and this world will sway us out of who God has called us to be. We have to see ourselves as God sees us. I remember I used to walk around and say, people ask me, what kind of Christian are you? And I would say, I'm a Pentecostal. I'm a spirit-filled Pentecostal. Chris, before he saw the light, (laughs) used to walk around and say, I'm a Catholic. I'm a Catholic. And then he joins an organization called the Church of God, which is a Pentecostal organization. And then he became a Pentecostal. But I can, I think I can say for you, Chris, and I can say for myself, I no longer see myself as a Pentecostal. Not that my beliefs have changed, not the way I worship God has changed. And I don't think Chris sees himself, well, I know he doesn't see himself as a Catholic anymore, and I don't think he sees himself as a Church of God Pentecostal anymore. Because we've matured in our faith. There's some other areas we need maturing in, but we've matured in our faith. And this is how I think we both see each other. We're just beloved children of God, right? We're beloved children of God. And whether someone's Baptist or Pentecostal or Methodist or Episcopal, or they're Catholic, or they're Anglican, you know, or they're any of the other fractions of Christianity that's out there, Lutheran, We're just beloved children of God. And so today, I want to just quickly describe to you, as beloved children of God, how God sees you. And the first thing that God sees in you when he looks at you, he sees a living stone. A living stone. You are not just a tool that God uses. For some of you, that is good news. You are not at all. In fact, 
You're not just a tool that God is using to build his kingdom. You are the very fabric of the kingdom of God that God is building. And this is an important difference. Because for so long, I I know how I've grown up and, and I've seen myself. I'm like, I'm a tool that is used by God. God, use me. Use me to build your kingdom. And the issue with this is you're not the tool, you're the kingdom. You're not the hammer or the saw or the drill. You're the masterpiece that God has created. The tool is used to make, to create, and to build something. But when you look at what has been built, nobody admires the tools. You don't look at a piece of, uh, uh, of furniture and think, you know what? I better DeWalt piece of toolery built that. That was no Ryobi. That was a DeWalt right there. If you got a Ryobi, I got Ryobi, so you go. I got, a, I got a DeWalt coffee mug. That's about it. No one admires the tool. Does God use us? Yes, absolutely. We are used within his kingdom. He has gifted us to help build his kingdom. Absolutely. However, you are not the tool. In fact, you are the very material that God is molding and shaping and cutting and sticking together to show off to the world. For you are his kingdom. You are his living stones. God isn't just using you for his own purposes. He is shaping you for you are his purpose. And I love that truth. I love that truth. Because so often we can think, well, if God doesn't use me, he'll use somebody else. And we tell that people, if you, if you're not, if, if you don't use your gifts, God will just use somebody else. But the truth is, You're his purpose. Jesus came to die and to save mankind, to come and bring his kingdom in so he can mold you and shape you so that you can be a stone in the kingdom of God. He is the cornerstone. But without you, the kingdom is nothing. For you are part of the kingdom of God. You are a living stone, and when God sees you, he sees his purpose in you. The second thing that God sees when he sees you is a holy priest, a holy priest. When I was young, I've always loved M&Ms. Anyone else love M&Ms? Anyone miss the M&Ms from the old building? I'm like, me. I used to love M&Ms, and when I was younger, I don't know if this was a little OCD in me or not, my mom would give me some M&M's as a snack, and I would look at the M&M's, and I would separate the M&M's, not by color, but by how faded the M was on the M&M's, right? So the ones with perfect M's, I would put one side, and ones with imperfect M's, I would put on the other side, and The Bible talks about separating, like, you know, the chaff from the wheat and stuff. And I think it was like a spiritual principle, maybe, (laughs) but it involved chocolate. 
And I would separate them, and then I would eat all the ones first that had the imperfections. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking like I was an eight-year-old kid, you know? I mean, and then I would rank the M on the ones that I would eat, right? We were poor, so I had my M&Ms rationed. I mean, I had to be serious about this thing. I didn't take a handful and just put them in my mouth. And then I would, I would rank them, and then I would slowly eat the individual ones that were the perfect ones. And the best M would be the last one I ate. I have no idea why I did that. <laughs> but that is what holy means. Holy means to set apart. It means you are different, you aren't like the rest. Now, holy doesn't mean weird. Holy doesn't mean quirky. For in church, there's a whole lot of weird and quirky people. Holy doesn't mean no one can relate to you. Holy doesn't mean that we lock ourselves away and we don't associate with anybody else but ourselves. Holy doesn't mean that you are better. Holy doesn't mean that God loves you more. And I think in church, we sometimes think that. Someone's more holy than me, God loves them more. That does not mean that. Holy just means that your life should look different and feel different from the others. You should have a different M on your M&M than everybody else. In the Bible, there was a tribe, 12 tribes of Israel, and one of the tribes of Israel is called Levi. Actually, if you look at Levi, Levi wasn't the most wholesome of character. He wasn't the best brother of Jacob. But for some reason, God determined that the tribe of Levi would be the tribe that he would make into his priest. It's probably because Moses and, and, and Aaron, his brother, came from the tribe of Levi, and they, they led the people of Israel out of, of Exodus. But when they were gone into the promised land, all the tribes were, were given different regions of the land to inherit so that they could go and that would be their land, except the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi, they were not given a piece of land. Instead, they were designated to be the priests for Israel. And instead of having land, they would just get given things by the other tribes and the other people. And they would come together and they would pay a tithe so that the Levites could have food and, and, and housing. And so nobody in the, Jewish, in the ancient Jewish culture could be a priest unless they were a Levite, unless they were separated from the rest. The Levites were the only ones who could come and offer sacrifices to God. They were different to everybody else. And as believers of Jesus, we also should be different. Our lives should not look the same as everybody else. There are fractions that are the same as other people. Yeah, we may have the same jobs. We may have the same houses or the same cars, wear the same clothes. But there should be a difference. There should be a distinction when you enter into a room. Your life should be different to everybody else's. And just as everybody else could see the Levites as different, as believers of Jesus, we are different. 
And God looks at you and he calls you his holy priests. That's just not a label that God is putting on you. That is a special designation that God is giving you. He is setting you apart. And what was the priest? The priest was the one who would offer the sacrifices to God. The high priest would be the one who would communicate with God. Who would have a face to face with God. And Jesus is saying, you now are the holy priest. You are set apart. And you now have this opportunity to be able to speak to God. Holy priests. You are a living stone. You are holy priests. Also, when God sees you, he sees a chosen people. A chosen people. Now, this we can get into all theological thoughts on this one, and we're not going to. Because there's lots of theological differences between what the word chosen means. And whenever I see the word chosen in the New Testament, I cringe because I know somebody has had an argument about that word at one point. But in 1 Peter, it's pretty obvious. It's not talking about people that God has chosen before the beginning of the world. And he's chosen some to be good and some to be bad. It's pretty obvious what Peter is saying. I'll give you an example. So last Saturday night, we went out for my wife's birthday. She turned 23. And uh, we went out. And it's not unusual for us to make a plan to leave at a certain time. And it'd be 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 minutes after we make that plan. And so I'm normally pacing around, like, come on, we got to go, we got to go. And Raquel's like, where have we got to go? Our reservation is for like an hour and a half. Yeah, but we said we were going. I go upstairs, she tried an outfit on. Outfit looked good. Yeah. And as a husband, you look beautiful. You look beautiful. Honey, you look beautiful. That looks great. She goes, I'm not sure. I'm like, okay, what else have you got? I'm thinking two choices. Because being a man, we have two choices. This one or this one, right? And whatever one is least creased, that's the one we wear, right? She tries the next one on. It looks even better. And now I'm in a dilemma. Because if I'd said, no, just wear the first one, we probably would have been at the house. But this one looks even better. I'm like, yeah, that one. Wear that one. Well, not the first one. You can wear the first one if you want. I'm like, but wear the second one, the second one. She goes, I'm not sure. Let me try something else on. Well, then she tried another one. Before we knew it, there was like seven outfits she had tried on. Even though the first two were great, amazing. And then what happened? You all know what happened, right? It was actually the second one, but it was a choice between the first two. She couldn't make a choice. And I'll be honest, I'm not really a fan of people who are indecisive. Make a choice and stick with it. That's what I believe. Yet what happens when you choose something and it appears to be the wrong choice? Obviously, there's nothing worse for a lady than being out and you chose an outfit and there's a better one at home. I don't know. But what happens when we choose the wrong thing? We question ourselves. Sometimes we go back on our choice. Sometimes we think back in regret. Oh, I should have done that one. We get buyer's regret. Anyone get buyer's regret? You go to the store, you buy something, 
And then you're like, ah, let's just return it. This doesn't happen to God. He makes a choice and he stands by it. In fact, often with God, it appears to be the wrong choice. Ever experienced that? But God knows exactly what he's doing. Let's be honest. If I was building the kingdom of God, hmm, would I choose you? I'm not going to answer that question. If you were building the kingdom of God, would you choose me? And I hope for everything in this world, you would say, no way. Yet, you and me are the very people that God has chosen. He chose you. Think about that for a moment. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, when you gave your life to Jesus and you asked him to be Lord of your life and you asked for forgiveness of sin and you asked him to come and transform you and change you and that you were born again of the Spirit of God, God chose you. He drafted you. You weren't the last one in the line on picked. You got the acceptance letter, not the rejection letter. God didn't just choose you, then ghost you, right? He didn't just say like, yeah, let's go on a date. And then you get the number and then he never answers the call. He didn't ghost you. In fact, he embraced you. He saw your faults and your bad habits. He even saw your failures. And he still chose you. Think about that. The creator of this world, the most perfect being that has ever existed, the only perfect being that has ever existed, the one who could create the stars and the moon, the one who put the earth into existence, the one who separated the land from the seas, the one who spoke with his mouth, let there be light and there was light, the one who breathed life into humanity, the one who put the animals and named them and, 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 and created the beauty that there is in this world, out of all that, he chose you. He chose you. And you know more than anybody else the faults there are in you. And he never looked back in regret and had buyer's remorse and says, you know what? I'm trading the American in for the British. Had to get that one in. He chose you. Finally. You are a living stone in God's eyes, part of the kingdom of God. You are a holy priest. You are a chosen people. And finally, when God sees you, he sees a royal descendant. I don't know what you guys think about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, but British people have a big opinion on this. I have a friend who is, uh, she lives in my neighborhood, um, and she is British, and uh, I saw her a couple of months ago, and uh, we're out, and I saw her husband and, and her. And uh, Raquel asked her the question, what do you think about Megan? Well, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> you ask my parents, and suddenly they won't stop all night. Every Brit has got an opinion on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. <laughs> 
But this is what I'm thinking. What were they thinking? Right? You are royalty. You have all the royal. You can do whatever you want in this world. You don't have to work. You get paid. You go and just smile and people love you. What were they thinking? And Canada, what were they thinking about that as well? I'm not sure. A little too cold for me. But royalty. There's a certain status about being royalty. In fact, there are incredible privileges that none of us will ever experience with being a descendant of a sovereign. And even if Prince Harry and Meghan Markle no longer wish to be part of the royal family, the truth is this. They have and they will continue to gain tremendously from Harry's bloodline because they will always be royal. And the truth is this, that as followers of Jesus, you now are joint heirs with Christ with the throne of God. What does that mean? You are children of God. You are royalty, which means you have royal blood. We are royal, and there are incredible privileges with being part of the bloodline of heaven. And there are people in this world who do not know Jesus. And we pray that they come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they do not have the privileges you do because you are royal. When God sees you, he sees royalty. You have a title, child of God. You are a prince or princess of the most high God. You have freedom. Whether you choose to ignore your privileges or not, you will always be part of his royal family. When God sees you, he sees a royal stone. He sees a holy priest. He sees a chosen people and he sees a royal descendant. When God sees you, he sees something special. He smiles on you. Once you had no identity, Peter says, but now you do. It's an identity that is so much better than race. It's better than nationality. It's better than gender. It's better than occupation. It's better than a sexual orientation or a giftedness or political persuasion. It's even better than a Christian denomination. Your identity is that God has chose you to be his royal holy priest, that he is setting apart to show the world his incredible living stones that are the kingdom of God. That is what God sees when he sees you. So as the blessed and the beloved of God, Peter instructs us to show others the goodness of God by understanding that this world and this pleasures are just temporary. It's not our landing place. We're journeyers journeying through. Peter tells us, don't be swayed by the pleasures and the thinking of this world. But instead, he says, be good neighbors. Live wholesome lives. Teach your kids the kingdom of God and that the kingdom always comes first. And give honor to God at all times then one day you will be honored for all to see. On the day that Jesus unveils his greatest masterpiece, you.
the kingdom of heaven. Let's bow our heads in prayer. That's why your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. We're going to finish our service with one more song in just a moment and worship God together. But before we do that, I want to pray over you and pray. that you will start to see yourself as God sees you. Because so many of us, we see our faults, we see our failures. We see what this culture defines us as. We see who we think we should be or what we thought we were. We listen so much to the voices of others. And it molds us into an identity that often is not a correct identity. But when God sees you, He smiles on you. When God sees you, He sees a work of art. He sees a masterpiece. He sees something that He is molding and He is shaping. And he is so excited to unveil to the world. When God sees you, he sees a son. He sees a daughter. When God sees you, he sees something that has been set apart for his purposes. When God sees you, he sees something chosen, not forsaken. When God sees you, He sees a distinguished royal. And so, Father God, tonight we thank you that you see so much more in us than whatever we could see in ourselves. We thank you, God, tonight, Lord, that you are smiling down on us. And Lord, despite our faults and our failures, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you continue to be by our side and lift us up and champion us. We thank you that you continue to mold and work with us and shape us. Lord, we thank you that we are your masterpiece. You are the great craftsman. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not given up on us. But, Lord, that you continue to work in us and through us. And so, God, tonight, we just pray in this place that we will start to see you as Jesus sees you. And we start to see ourselves as you see us. Father, we pray that you'll break down the false narratives and the false identities that maybe we've brought on ourselves or what others have given us or others have told us that we are. And God, that we have fresh revelations tonight, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, that our minds will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that renewing becomes our identity as you see us tonight. So, Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We ask in your name tonight, we pray. Amen. Amen. With that being said, let's stand tonight and let's sing a hallelujah for what God has done and is still doing in and through us tonight.